This is the St. Longinus's Baptism Podcast Channel. This is episode number 35 about spiritual and physical martyrdom. But first, a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. All that I am, all that I have, and all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory, and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. This episode is geared mainly towards set of a contest in that, quite frankly, um, I obviously don't mess around with uh, Protestants or Neo-Catholics or the uh, Neo-Trad LARPers. So, basically, I listen to materials um, put out by actual set of a contest. And I've noticed a trend, especially... Let me, let me back up just a tad. Um, I've noticed this trend for a while. And I've actually commented on, on this phenomena on at least, at least one other episode. But this episode is from one of my earlier episodes. And going with the experience that I've had doing this podcast, I can't assume that, number one, anybody's listened to the earlier podcast that is still listening, and number two, that anyone has even heard that episode. And because there are, at at this count, I have uh, probably at least 80 episodes for for the sake of people who don't start at the beginning, I I think it's a good idea that sometimes I recycle old. I either recycle old ideas or I go into depth into something that I mentioned in passing. Now for this particular. Uh, idea that the Lord Jesus and Mother Mary put on me, uh, I think I've mentioned this topic in passing. And it bears repeating, and I'm going to try to be... This is not going to be a long episode. It's... Just by its very nature, it's not going to be a long episode. So I'm going to try to be as um, uh, conscientious and detailed with this subject as I can be. Because I know it's, it's going to be well under an hour. So I've noticed with a lot of set of a contest that... They don't, 
spiritually speaking, a lot of set of a contest don't understand the spiritual um, teachings. And there are certain areas I've, I've, I, I have stated ad nauseum that when it comes to doctrine, um, canon law and church history, they are literally, uh, amateur experts. But as I've also said ad nauseum, um, there is a segment of set of who are definitely, who definitely have blind spots. Now, with this certain segment I'm talking about, they're very knowledgeable when it comes to dogma, canon law, and church history. But the particular blind spot that I'm noticing is is they don't seem to understand. And I think a lot of this is because it's not a major dogma. It's, uh, it's, it's a dogma, but it's not, it's not one that you would use. Well, I've had the, one uh, experience where I actually had to use this teaching, this dogma with a uh, a neotrad LARPer. But for the most part, if it can't be used for apologetics purposes, a lot of set of contests may either be unaware of it, of these teachings, or... um they just might not give it deeper thought. So, there is a dogma in the Catholic Church. At least I think it's a dogma. And I don't... Let me rephrase my thinking, or my what I'm saying. I'm not entirely certain it's a dogma, so I don't want to call it a dogma, but I know it's a teaching of the Catholic Church that you don't want to go to either one extreme or the other. You don't want to be harsh. On the other hand, you don't want to be lax. And <laughs> when, I, when I pointed this out to this Neotrad LARPer, that the Catholic Church has never taught, you know, taking extreme on any position. I'm not going to get into what we were debating about because it's a waste of our time. But I explained to him that we do not take extremes. And I said that Bishop Sanborn who's probably forgotten more about church history, canon law, and dogma than any of us will ever know in this lifetime. And basically what this, what this Neotrad LARPer said was, well, I don't care what Bishop Sanborn had to say. And I suspect that either 
well, that's when I knew he was instead of a contest because when I was dealing with him, um, I hadn't done the homework and looked into what he, you know, what his account was like. And once he said this, I knew that he either was not a practicing set of a contest or um, he was not a practicing Catholic. Because when I would, when I myself was in the Vatican II sect, they taught us this principle. And Bishop Sanborn, I happened to catch either a conference or a sermon he was getting giving where he said, you don't want to, the Catholic church does not want the extremes. They want to, they want things to be in the middle. And a lot, <laughs> I'm just going to make this personal observation because this subject that I'm covering is not going to be, um, it's, I'm going to be as, um, as, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Conscientious. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be as conscientious as I can, but, I have enough time here where I can give a few observations on the side. I have noticed with younger, it's it's not just set of a contest, and I've covered this probably ad nauseum too, but the younger generations are very stubborn and they're very ill-informed, but because they're young... And they're not well educated. They, if they get an idea in their head and you contradict that idea, and you know, on all my social media platforms, I am who I say I am. I'm in I'm I'm in my 50s. And while I might have not had an adventurous life, I've definitely had an interesting one. And I'm saying that kind of ironically and very much in the spirit of the truth. I've led a very interesting life. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the font of all wisdom and anybody who has bothered to do to look at my social media accounts will know that I make a point to stress that I am not the font of on of all knowledge. And I also do not I try not to make statements that I cannot back up. That's why I said this teaching of not taking the extremes because I'm not a hundred percent percent sure it's not dogma I didn't want to give a definitive statement but I know it's a teaching but 
with the young with the two younger generations and by the way once again i'm not singling them out and as far as that goes this is not this is not a broad brush statement this is a generalization i'm saying there's a certain element within the last two generations and Every once in a while, I have to make this disclaimer. With most of the things that I talk about on the 80 80 or so episodes I have done, I've either been guilty of in the past or presently guilty of now. However, I am working on my faults and my sins or as best as I can with the help of Lord Jesus and his blessed mother and their graces and blessings. Anyway, so having said that, um, there are Xers and boomers who also suffer from this. And I think that there's a, a portion of my generation and the boomers who've had kids and either because of bad parenting or no no parenting at all, no no being the example, no leading by example, no teaching profitable things to their kids, that these, the, the, the youngsters who, who uh, exhibit these traits, um, they've either been erroneously taught these traits or they're doing it out of ignorance. But I thought that I would mention this because in a lot of social media experiences, and as I've said in my introductory podcast, I've been on social media long enough to have a pretty good idea. And I also want to stress this. When I say pretty good idea, because this is another um, erroneous idea that the youngsters have, that if you comment on a person's actions and behavior, I'm sorry, actions and words, that somehow you're judging them. And I know this to be a fact because I've been dealing with this since the 2000s that the younger generations have been taught erroneous ideas about what judgment is. Okay? The proper Catholic term, which is in every examination of conscience guide, is... Rash judgment. And what rash judgment means, if you have not caught my previous episodes where I've talked about this, is you are imputing thoughts and motivations that are not known to you personally. So if you're commenting on Joe Rando out in the street, that is a rash judgment. If, however somebody close to you, a spouse, a a child, or a relative, father, mother, whatever, and you know them personally, and you comment 
because you know them personally and you comment on something, it is not a rash judgment when you make that observation or statement. Now, the reason why I went into that detail is because I have been accused of rash judgment. When the only thing I have done is commented on what a poster has written down. I did not ascribe motivations and I did not ascribe intent. I merely gave an observation on what they wrote. So, a lot of the youngsters are under the impression when somebody either says something publicly, not secondhand, publicly, or they do a public act that it is judging them when you comment on the public behavior or the public comments. That is not judgment. As Catholics, we are allowed to comment on public statements and public behaviors. We just can't ascribe motive, motive or intent if we do not know them personally. And I just thought I'd make that clear to the youngsters. But with a lot of the younger generation, um, I've had experiences where they will take what I wrote personally when it was not meant personally, or if I say something that clashes with their preconceived ideas. And a lot of youngsters have a lot of preconceived ideas. And they hold on to these ideas tenaciously. Tenaciously. And... Like a lot of things, if you try, no matter how gently or how charitably you try to point out, you might want to rethink that idea. If you say that, they take it personally. However, this is part of Catholic dogma. I have a prayer book that I use, have been using since last summer. It's the Father LaSance prayer book from, I believe it's like 1929. And in it, when you do the examination of conscience, it lists the seven spiritual works of mercy to admonish sinners is number one. Two is to instruct the ignorant. Three is to counsel the doubtful. Four is to comfort the sorrowful. Five is to bear wrongs patiently. Six is to forgive all injuries. And seven, to pray for the living and the dead. These are the seven spiritual works of mercy. And... If it were not a matter of dogma, I do not think it would be in this prayer book. And I mentioned to you it was published quite purposely 
This was pre-Vatican II. So, when these when these youngsters take offense, I thanks thanks to the Lord Jesus and Mother Mary's um um graces, I know that they're getting upset out of ignorance. I mean, there are probably other things involved there, but as I've said ad nauseum, to quote a very horrible American president, that's above my pay grade. However, when they get offended at a statement of fact, I I can say, you know, I can observe that they're getting angry out of ignorance. Because only a person who is ignorant gets angry over a statement of fact. Provable and verifiable fact, no less. So, I've spent 20 minutes basically outlining some faults that come out of Basically, when you use church teaching as apologetics against your enemies and not for building your your own knowledge up for your own personal edification. And this brings me to the topic of this episode. A lot of sedimentists, and as I said earlier, they will quote you or they are amateur experts at, on dogma is apologetics, um, church history is apologetics, and canon law. I've noticed that it's a mix. Sometimes it's used as apologetics, but mostly it is used for for understanding church uh, law. But like I said earlier. When you when you do when you use dogma, it's not just meant to 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 show somebody that they're they're operating out of ignorance. It and this this is a blind spot for a ton of set of contests. Well, I won't say a ton, a segment of set of contests. It's a blind spot that they literally don't use dogma in the spiritual life for their own edification, for their own spiritual growth. And the reason why I say this is because for this certain segment of set of contests I'm talking about, they fall into, and by the way, I'm stealing this line from one of my favorite podcasters. The man is is a credit to what he does, and he's a credit to the set of a contest movement. He calls it binary thinking, basically black and white. And they fall into this binary thinking that 
spiritual and physical martyrdom are separate. They fall into the binary thinking of, well, only monks and religious priests and nuns can have a spiritual life. We, we as Joe Pugh Catholics, we, we don't need to have a spiritual life. And I've covered that as ad nauseum. And they also fall into the binary thinking of that you cannot be a spiritual person and fight for the Catholic Church. Not only is that binary thinking, that is literally ignorance of of Catholic history. Um, And I will get into the examples. But before I get into the examples, I want to clarify that, first of all, spiritual martyrdom And there are plenty of saints who talk about this. Their quotes are easily verifiable on any uh, quote website where they say spiritual martyrdom is sacrificing the lawful things that you could do for the love of God. So let's just say you want to make a sacrifice for... Um, God to show him how much you love him and you you really love steak and beer you really love steak and beer now you're not getting drunk you're just you but every Friday you have a steak and a couple of beers but you decide out of love of God and to get closer to him you're going to make this sacrifice to him out of love for him that is what's known as spiritual martyrdom when you give up legal and lawful things out of love of God. Now, I have stated in the past when I talked about the spiritual life ad nauseum that basically the spiritual life is spiritual martyrdom for God. And then there's physical martyrdom. There's literal physical martyrdom. Okay, and that is when, let's just say the the Masonic Satanic Goon Squad comes to your house, kicks in your door, and puts a gun to your head and says, renounce Christ or we kill you, and you say, well, go ahead, go ahead and kill me because I ain't doing it. That is, that is. Physical martyrdom. But here's the thing. Just because. Just because. You're a spiritual person. Does not mean. That. Fighting for the cause. Of true Catholicism. And being a spiritual person are two separate things. They're not. 
And here's the examples I'm going to give. St. Joan of Arc. I'm currently reading her biography. The, the, the uh, St. Joan of Arc and St. John Capistrano have been a particular influence on me. And I took St. John Capistrano as my patron saint. But basically, St. Joan of Arc, the secular um, image makers in France made her out to be a military hero. What she was. But what they downplay, because France has you know, been secular since the 1700s, actually it's been a mess since the 1400s, but I'm not going to get into that. But what they downplay was the fact, in addition to being what, what, what made her uh, a saint was not just the fact that basically the English put her to death, a literal martyrdom, because even though England and France at that time were both Catholic countries, basically they put her to death because she basically got them out of the majority of France militarily. And they were embarrassed and they were PO'd. So when Joan was betrayed by her own side over to the English. And they tried. And, and she kept saying that St. Michael and St. Elizabeth. And there was another saint. And I can't remember the other saint's name. But basically they, they told her. To, Remove the England, the English from France. And when she wouldn't recant that, when they tried to say that she was lying, she wouldn't recant. So they executed her. They burned her as a heretic. Now, I don't want to get into a deep dive about the history of that time period, but it was shortly after the Western Schism. So, as soon as she was put to death by the English, the Pope at that time, and I believe he was uh, Martin V, sent a commission into France and interviewed everybody who ever knew St. Joan of Arc. And what they came away with was that before she even embarked on her military career, that she was known throughout her, her little province that she lived in for her pious and devout life that she led. So when the Catholic Church basically... Uh, beatified her they did so not only because she was a martyr now I don't want to make a definitive statement so I will qualify this statement by saying to my knowledge if you die for the faith if you are martyred for the faith 
And once again, I'm, I'm qualifying this. My understanding is that you get made a saint. And I'm probably mistaken on that, but that's my understanding. So they could have, they could have, just on the fact alone, that um, she was martyred for her faith, even though it was other Catholics martyring her, they could have, they could have made her a saint for that alone. But they interviewed the people from her province and everybody who ever knew her testified, testified to her, to her, um, devoutness and her, um, her sanctity. And just, just the story on its own level says volumes. A 17-year-old girl with no military experience performs what can only be be termed miraculous things. She was able to pick out the French king, even though, being the 1400s, she had no idea who she was, or who he was, rather, and he hid because he wanted to test her, and she walked right up to him, told him things that only he himself knew. Not only that, this... France and England had been at war at this point for a hundred years. She led a battle-hardened army against a much larger force and routed a, a, a better, a, a numerically superior force. And actually engaged in hand-to-hand combat. That in and of itself. Oh, and not only did she take these hardened veterans, a 17-year-old girl. Now, I I would like to ask you guys to move out of the modernist mindset that you're in. In in 15th century France, 17-year-old girls do not lead armies. They don't. No, no matter what your animumites tell you or the comic books you read, in 15th century France, that did not happen. You know, for for you feminists out there, it was a patriarchy and quite proud of it. But not only did she do that, all, uh, the the army that followed her was so moved by her pious example that they actually tried to be pious themselves and anybody who's ever been in the military and I don't care if it's 15th century France uh, 20th century America or uh, whatever most most combat vets are some of the saltiest individuals you will ever meet So for her, and by the way, I mean, 
she would gently correct them, you know, because females are more polite than guys. She would gently correct them. But overall, they were so moved by her own example that they basically, they tried to be more devout for her sake. Okay? So, you can be a saint or a martyr, a spiritual person, and and still fight. Now, I want to add this caveat too. I keep trying to tell the younger generations that it is a matter of Catholic dogma that as Catholics, we do not fight we, we do not make wars of aggression. We do not start wars. We finish them. So we only fight in self-defense. Now, a lot of people would tell you, oh, that's, that's terrible, that's horrible military strategy. That's Catholic teaching. So, do with it what you will. The second example I want to give is... Um, St. John Capistrano, my own patron saint. And I'm going to try to wrap this up. This got a lot longer than I anticipated. St. John Capistrano, now his dad was a knight. But his dad died when he was about four or five years old. So obviously he had no military training. And when he got to be of age, he became a lawyer before he decided to to join the Franciscans. Now, when he joined the Franciscans, and we're talking, this is around the same time period, by the way. Um, he was, yeah, I, I, I think him and Jonah Ark were, were contemporaries, of course, because of the times, they probably never knew of each other till they got to heaven. Um, but he was known he was known for his wisdom and his sanctity. I mean, within, within like five years of becoming a monk. And you guys are going to love this. His, when you become a monk, you basically have an abbot who trains you in the spiritual life. His abbot was a saint. And his abbot was extremely hard on him. Extremely hard on him. But when he realized that St. John Capistrano was a very devout and pious man, he actually used him in a professional capacity to do things that he was unable to do due to lack of time or circumstances. And basically, St. John Capistrano worked within Germany, Poland, uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and northern uh what is now known, or what was once known as Yugoslavia. 
And his, his sanctity and his devoutness was such that the Franciscan order wanted to make him a saint before he even died. They petitioned the Pope at that time. Once again, I believe it was Martin V. But, and this this just goes to show St. John Capistrano's piety. He knew that his abbot, who later became the head of the Franciscan order, was a saint. And he basically told his brothers, his brother monks, he said, quash, quash that crap about making me a uh, saint. We need to, to make our Franciscan leader a saint. And he proposed shortly before this, uh, the head of the Franciscan order died, he he uh, personally went to the Pope and said, we need to canonize this guy. We need to canonize him. And because St. John Capistrano was universal, well, not universal, known in that part of U- Europe for his sanctity and devoutness, the Pope actually um, went ahead and started the uh, beatification process. Because of St. John Capistrano. And by the way, this head of the Franciscan order had done multiple miracles on his, on his own right. Anyway, so we have a saintly man, by all counts, with no military training. Well, toward the end of his life, the Turks had invaded Southeast Europe and their Sultan at that time had basically said, I'm not going to stop until I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the Pope's chair. And unlike nowadays, in those times, if somebody said something, unless they proved otherwise, you took them at their word. So the Pope tried to get the princes of Europe to send some soldiers to fight the Turks before they could reach um, basically Belgrade was, was the gateway into Central Europe. And he, the Pope at that time was begging and pleading with the princes of all the European principalities to send troops. They wouldn't listen. So in his desperation, he goes to St. John Capistrano. Now, St. John Capistrano was in his mid to late 60s when the Pope approached him. And he basically asked him, he begged him, he said, talk to whoever you can and recruit whoever you can get and go to Belgrade and help defend it. The only prince 
The only prince that would help him was a Hungarian prince who had previously um, fought the Turks and done so successfully. And he, he and John Capistrano had a mutual admiration for each other. And he was basically disgusted with the other Catholic princes that they were sitting on their thumbs when Rome was ripe to be invaded. But for St. John Capistrano's sake, he got together a small army. I want to say ten to 15,000 troops. I don't even think it was that much. It might have only been 10,000 troops, but it was between ten and 20,000 troops, professional. St. John Capistrano, and for those of you who are familiar with the First Crusade, he basically went on his way to Belgrade and preached from town to town. Hey, we need to stop the Turks. They aim to capture Rome and overthrow uh, Christendom. And <laughs> he had an army, if you want to call it that. I want to say between forty to 50,000 peasants. No military training. Because in, in that era, you know, whenever a prince or a king um, needed to build an army, he would task a duke or a lord of a certain region and basically they would gather their peasants and basically just give them like pitchforks and basically, the peasants were cannon fodder. They didn't even bother to try to train these guys. So here we have St. John Capistrano going from town to town on his way to Belgrade. By the time he gets to Belgrade, he has between forty to 50,000 troops. Peasants, I should say. This was literally a rabble. And... Most of them were, weren't armed with anything more than a pitchfork or a sharpened uh, stick. And him and um, the Hungarian prince get to Belgrade and they wait for the Turkish assault. Now, it is a matter of historical record that the Turks' army was over two. 100,000 men. And these, unlike their army, these were not peasants. These were well-trained, well-equipped Turkish troops with artillery and um, all the weapons of war that a well-equipped uh, well army needs in those days. And they they were battle hardened, you know. They they basically had been kicking the stuffing out of any Catholic kingdom that came within their reach, and for the most part, they were successful up until Belgrade. Now Belgrade had three three walls of defense. They had an outer wall, a middle wall, and then the inner wall. So 
the Turks using their artillery basically leveled the outer wall. But because of the leadership, the military leadership of the Hungarian prince, they took heavy casualties doing that. And by the way, throughout the fighting, St. John Capistrano had his his uh his contingent of monks went with him. And basically they went to perform priestly duties for the peasants that were there. But him and his monks, in addition to taking care of the spiritual needs and the physical needs of the of the peasants and the troops that were inside Belgrade, they were praying. They were praying hard. So the Turks take heaven casualties, but eventually they break into the second wall or break to the second wall. And basically, oh, sorry, sorry. What happens next is they hit the second wall and thanks to the Hungarian prince's leadership, they take massive casualties there. However, the Hungarian prince by this point is down to, to a remnant of his 10,000 or his 20,000 trained troops that he had. And the peasants were doing their part, but mostly the professional soldiers didn't want him in their way, so they didn't take heavy casualties. So they retreated into the inner wall. Now, if the Turks had succeeded in breaching that inner wall, that's it. Central Europe is open to the Muslims there is no more Christendom. There is no more Catholicism. And by this point, the prince, like I said, there's mutual respect and love between him and St. John Capistrano. And he turns to St. John Capistrano. He's like, look, I've been in this situation before. I'll die. I'll die on this uh, in this castle defending Catholicism, but I don't see any way of winning. And St. John Capistrano told this, this battle-hardened prince, don't worry. We're going to win, and God's going to help us win. Now, because this guy's a prince. I'm thinking he was more natural in outlook than, than the saint was. And to him, it looked pretty hopeless. But because he liked and respected Capistrano, he held his peace. So by this time, the Turks had gotten to the, to the last line of defense. Now, by this point, they had taken massive casualties. The, the, the accounts of the battle don't really uh, give the amount. But when they, by the time they got to the inner wall, 
There were dead bodies everywhere. And there was, there was some, I don't want to say tar, because tar is not the right word, but there were, there was flammable, um, there was flammable material at the wall where the Turks were getting ready to breach. And it, it, it was never proven who, who did this. But somebody on the Catholic side took a, a, lit, uh, a lit torch and they tossed it on this flammable material. And a small section of where the Turks were attacking just went up in flames. And anybody who's ever seen a flame floor thrower in action will know what that, you know, what kind of terror that can cause. And then the rest of the Catholics that were defending that wall just started, and the ladies, you know, what little ladies there were in the in the in the city started handing them lit torches and they just started tossing lit torches off the walls. And because this flammable material was all over the front of the last line of defense, it it, it was I'm not gonna be so uh, hyperbolic as to say it was like napalm, but just picture uh, a bunch of soldiers that are going through a field of uh, of dry grass that has been coated with either tar and oil and somebody throws a lit, a Molotov cocktail in their mix. But instead of, you know, uh, a small group of soldiers, we're talking probably, I, I want to say, in the area of around 100,000 troops. And because, you know, because of the walls, all the available Turkish troops, fighting troops, were between the first and second walls. And anybody who's ever played with fire knows if one person's on fire, they're going to set their neighbors on fire. And that's exactly what happened. And so the, the fighting troops between the first and second walls are mostly on fire and it's chaos. They're, they're, le they're running. They're running for their lives. And then all of a sudden, the peasants, and remember, I said there was between, I want to say, 40,000 and 50,000 peasants. They start shouting something like, for God, for God, for God. And they, you know, um, Capistrano, uh, St. John Capistrano tried to stop them, but they just rushed by him. <laughs> and they started, you know, you do, you do what, you know, when the enemy's retreating, you go and you smoke them while they're confused and, you know, they're dying. And they just, they go after these, these retreating troops and they just start hacking and slashing. And St. John Capistrano, 
he's he's um he expected victory, but he also knew that if he didn't go with them and try to restrain them from their bloodlust, that they would probably end up getting smoked themselves. So he went with them. And when they got to a certain point, he stopped them. Because if he hadn't stopped them, they would have followed him, you know, as long as they were able because the bloodlust was up. All right, um, I'm going to finish off this quick story and we're going to try to wrap this up. Sorry about the length. Okay, so where I left off was St. John Capistrano with no military training using literal peasants routed obviously with the help of a very small army but routed 200 at least 200,000 well-armed battle-hardened Turkish troops from Belgrade. And he did, he, he was involved in some of the fighting, not all of it, but some of it. And so I'm going to give one more example before I close out this episode. And given Given the fact, especially with the younger set of a con well, the neo the, the neo trad larpers too, about the 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 Templars, they should know this fact. The Templars they were knights, but they were a religious order, meaning they took a vow and. If you're if you're if you call yourself Catholic and did not know about these vows, you should be ashamed of yourself. All religious orders, whether they be priests, monks, or nuns, take three vows: poverty, chastity, and obedience. And anybody who knows, uh, I I talked about this in an earlier episode. There is a guy. Um, I think he's a Norvis Ordo Catholic, but um, I he 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 doesn't seem to have an agenda. He has an entire YouTube channel dedicated to the Crusades, and he documents how um, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux helped draft the rule of the Templars, the Knights Templar. And I'm 90% sure that the Hospitallers were also a religious order. And yet, you know, despite the fact that these are religious monks, they obviously fought in the Middle East. So what I'm trying to get across to people is 
Don't get it twisted. Okay? You know, I've I've run across young uh fire-breathing set of contests who want to have a crusade and drive Bergoglio out of the, the Vatican. Well, that's that's uh I wanna I wanna put this so it's not misunderstood. The first crusade was called by a legitimate pope. We as um we as set of accountists do not have a magisterium. Now if it were available, as old and decrepit as I am, if, if something like that could be pulled off, even, even if I had to, you know, clean weapons or change bandages or empty uh, vomit buckets or whatever in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, hospital tents, I'd do it. Whatever I could do to help. But the fact of the matter remains is the first crusades were called by a pope. Actually, I'm not, there, there was at least 12 crusades and it covered at least, I want to say, two to three hundred years. There were out of the other crusades, there were a few that were also called by popes. So what I'm saying is, um, the set of a contest movement does not have the magisterial authority to call a crusade against Vatican II. And given, you know, just use your common reason, people. Vatican II... If, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, Vatican II is probably going to be end up being the satanic, masonic, one-world religion. That is, that is my theory on how that's going to wind up. So even, even, if we were able to call a crusade, we would literally be fighting the majority of the world. So, um, what I'm saying is it's not practical. And yes, my, 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 um, Catholic, uh, true Catholic friends, prudence is actually a virtue. Um, charging, uh, into a machine gun nest with, uh, uh, Bob wire and sandbags with just a sword. That's not prudence. Now, maybe grabbing a bag of grenades and, um, low crawling within throwing distance of that, uh, foxhole and pulling the pin on one of the grenades and shoving it in the bag and then tossing the bag into the 
into the foxhole. Now, that's prudence. <laughs> but anyway, so my point in saying this all is, is that there, there's nothing in Catholic teaching that says that spiritual people cannot be formed into armies and sent either in defense of or to free fellow true Catholics, there's nothing that says that religious people can't do it. And there's nothing in Catholic teachings that says soldiers are soldiers, priests are priests, and there, there's a line of demarcation between them. There's nothing that says that. And <laughs> as, as I've already proven, you know, a lot of times people get into, the, you know, and it's the times we live in. We've been trained to think with our secular minds, our carnal minds, and not with our spiritual minds. You don't think that when God sent a 17-year-old girl to lead a hardened French army that was smaller and Ill, more ill-equipped against the might of a battle-hardened English army two to three times their size, that he wasn't trying to prove a point? You got to think about the time. That was the 1400s. You know, pious, young, 17-year-old Catholic girls wouldn't be caught dead in the midst of a band of soldiers, more or less leading them into battle. So my advice is, don't, don't judge things on surface levels. Try to use your spiritual eyes and ears. Because a lot of times what may seem like the most unlikely person to do a miraculous thing, well, as I never, I say ad nauseum, my God is the God of irony. He will take the most unlikely person and they will perform incredible inhuman acts that could only be termed miracles because he wants to prove a point. So please, please, try to develop your spiritual understanding and try, for the love of all that is holy, try to expand your your dogmatic and biblical knowledge and your historical knowledge to something, or I'm sorry, try to develop that knowledge for your own edification, not to get on to stupid online debates that don't do nothing. They don't do nothing. But if you expand your own knowledge, maybe... You can get some spiritual wisdom and insight. 
All right, guys. This has gone long enough, and actually this has gone a lot longer than I would have liked. So if you made it this long, and the topic for once isn't very controversial, and for once the tone, my tone, was not, you know, uh, I'll say aggressive. (laughs) I'll church it up. I'll say aggressive. But I thank you for your time. And if you made it this far, I especially thank you for listening. Because time is an important resource. And I hope and pray, and I forgot to say this on my last episode, I hope and pray that you got something out of this. I really do. But I I put out what Lord Jesus and his blessed mother put into me, and I let them do the rest. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. I hope you got something useful out of this. Have a good day. God bless you. Bye-bye.